I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Well, thank you very much and, and, and welcome, everyone. I'm very excited, you know, about our conversation. I've been very much looking forward to this. As you all know, Matthias Senard is one of the leading writers in novelists in France and also, in my opinion, one of the leading thinkers. But I find it difficult to you know, situate you in one national identity, in one location. In my eyes, you're also a global soul. He has, uh, he has got, received many prizes, the leading, lots of prizes, including the top literary prize in uh, France, the Goncourt, uh, for Compass in the year 2015. And this novel was also shortlisted for the Man Booker International. And at the time I was judging, uh, I was one of the judges <coughs> for the Man Booker International. And I remember it very vividly. We had these very passionate conversations around the table about Compass. And I think enough time has passed by for me to say that this definitely was one of my favorite books uh, for me among the whole pile of more than 100 books submitted that year. So... I'm very, very happy to have this conversation. And if possible, I want to start with the idea of place. Uh, I think place, placelessness, homeland, where is homeland, what is self-imposed exile, all these questions that matter to me in my life, I find them being uh, elaborated in such, with such beauty in your book, uh, in your books. And I also want to talk about your starting place. Uh, I was born in Strasbourg. You were born in New York, on the other side of the of the map, and yet you live in Barcelona. You teach Arabic in Barcelona, uh, and you also own a Lebanese restaurant in Barcelona. <laughs> it's it's just fascinating. I want to talk about place and and hear your thoughts about that. Well, thank you. I'm, uh, first of all, I'm I'm very very happy to be here with you tonight. Uh, I was also very looking forward to this, yeah. and uh, it's beautiful that our first conversation takes place in public, and so you'll all be witnesses of it. Uh, it's true, I was born in, in France, in the west uh, of France, in Niort, a uh, small town, and now I'm living in Barcelona, so yeah. it's... And I am... It's true that in Niort, nothing in west of France could probably destiny you to something else that, to 
exotic lands or of uh, faraway places because you know my my family comes from there and is very French and I'm not. And as a child, I had no, I hadn't traveled. And I thought I took my first plane. I think I was something like 18 years old or something. So it was all about daydreaming and reading books. Mm. And um, maybe as the first thing I remember was my first contact, real contact to the Orient and to the East was very through a book. It was through the, the I remember I was something like eight or nine years old and I, the first book I took in the library uh, was an illustrated version of the Thousand and One Nights very big book. Of course, I, I, I didn't read it. <laughs> I just saw the, the images. Uh, and I think that's not the first thing I remember about my being connected to, to distant lands. And then because I wanted so much to leave my hometown, I decided to study... Um, foreign languages um, in, in Paris, and I studied Arabic and Persian first. And that started it, you know, a long journey that took me through the Middle East and then brought me back on the other side of the Mediterranean to Barcelona, where it's where I own a, a Lebanese restaurant. That's another kind of adventure. And um, But in Barcelona, I wrote all my books, I think, so maybe... There's a Catalan flair in it. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about it downstairs. To me, it's fascinating. You know, coming from Turkey, some of you might be familiar with this. In, as we modernized and Turkified the language, national language in Turkey, we took out hundreds and hundreds of words that would come from Persian or Arabic origin. Yeah. Uh, so it's to me fascinating the languages that we weren't interested in. And we tried to get rid of in Turkey in the name of a national project. Your first love with the Orient or with the Middle East mm. is, is through language, languages, and that, that opens up. Did you ever consider writing or, 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 or maybe like, let me put it this way. Do you think you reserve different languages for different emotions? Does, do you ever feel that way? Oh, that like be, for anger, for, yeah. That would be beautiful. No, I don't. I, I, you know, you mean like if I, I swear in, in Arabic yeah, or yeah. something? <laughs> no, no. It's just um, I've always written, as long as fiction or books are concerned, I've always written in French. I actually live in, um, in Spanish and Catalan and also in uh, Arabic every day. Yeah. But um, I've only written in Spanish for newspapers and magazines and then in Arabic also for some journalistic works. But mostly non-fiction. Mostly non-fiction. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm very, very... Um, for me, it's, it's always a, like a kind of big mystery. Those people who put, switch languages, who can yeah. uh, write in Turkish or in Arabic and then switch to English, or uh, like Nabokov or Conrad, uh, change from totally different language and... Uh, into another one. That's for me very, very difficult. I, I couldn't do that, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, the, the theme of language, identity, um, the other of the other, all of these are so important for this recent translation of Tell Them of Battles, Kings and Elephants. 
Uh, I'm assuming many people in the audience have read it, but it's uh, early 1500s. We see Michelangelo in Istanbul. Of course, back then it's not Istanbul, it's Constantinople. Uh, and this is the time of Sultan Bayezid II, who later on in the Turkish, in Turkish historiography became known as a very religious, pious, um, Sultan. But the time we're talking about is when he's interested in art, architecture, right? In, in, in this universe, he invites, uh, Michelangelo to design a bridge. I want to talk about bridges, uh, <laughs> if, if possible, you know, in a world where walls are more, appreciated than bridges what does that mean is it is it a source of hope at the same time connectivity yes you know first of all it was it was real that what i i I learned when i realized that michelangelo was going to istanbul to build a bridge uh, commissioned by the sultan i was so surprised say oh that's that's wonderful bridge between east and west well then i realized that it was between north and south but um so I was not so happy with my, with the bridge. So I said, maybe I could send him to Istanbul to build something else. Yeah. You know? Let's say, what about the mosque? That would be wonderful. Yeah. And maybe he could meet Sinan, for example, yeah. or something like that. But at that time, Sinan was uh, still a soldier. You know, Sinan, the, the huge Ottoman architect who built yeah. the Suleimaniye Mosque and many mosques in, in, in the Ottoman Empire. But at that time, he was a soldier in the Balkans, so there was sure. no way there that he could was, meet yeah, yeah. Michelangelo. So I, I, yeah. I sticked to my bridge and accepted the, let's say, the metaphor that it could be a bridge between um, cultures, a bridge between languages, and between times and places too. Mm-hmm. What I don't like about the bridge metaphor is that if you have a bridge, then you have a river. Or a bridge that means a real mm-hmm. frontier, a real barrier between two cultures or realities. Mm-hmm. And um, I n- don't think it's true. Because if you look at Istanbul, for example, mm-hmm. it's always been a very cosmopolitan, very mixed city. Mm-hmm. Ottoman language in itself, as, as you said, used a lot of Arabic and Persian uh, tradition mm-hmm. of poetry prose writing in its own language. So it's uh, very mixed. And Istanbul at that time was mixed between mm, the Ottoman power, but also the Greek inhabitants, the the foreign merchants, the incoming uh, Janissary from the Balkans. Uh, It was really a a plural society that... uh, of course, it's disappeared later on, but but still at that time, it's still in the making, you know. It's, and yeah. So it's very it's beautiful liquid. to yeah. yes, yeah. it's um, when I first began. Well, I have to tell you the beginning of this story. I was writing another book called Zone, mm-hmm. and I was living in Rome by then. And Zone is all about the Mediterranean warfare, uh, battles, uh, fighters in the twentieth century. And it was very exhausting to write zone. So in the afternoons in Rome, I used the library, the Villa Medici, it was a wonderful place, wonderful, beautiful old libraries, and I just took books uh, and read for two or three hours and then went back to, to my place. And by chance one day, I, I took the biography of Giorgio Vasari, of Michelangelo. I knew very little 
of Michelangelo's life. I only seen in Rome the Pietà, and I knew about the David, and of course the the Sixteen Chapel, uh, but nothing else. So I, I was really interested. And I began to read the the Vasari. Vasari was the first, maybe the first historian of art, and uh, very early, in the beginning of the seventeenth, the end of the sixteenth century, if I'm not mistaken, and is almost a contemporary of, of Michelangelo himself. And at one point, I, I read. This incredible sentence, uh, Michelangelo is almost 30 years old, a little more, and he leaves Rome because uh, uh, he fights with the Pope, go back to Florence, and then he receives an invitation from the Sultan of Constantinople to go there. I say, what? <laughs> Michelangelo <laughs> in Istanbul? What for? What? And, and, and uh, Vasari says nothing more. Mm-hmm. Then it switches subjects and says, uh, Michelangelo then goes to Bologna and then uh, comes back to Rome, works again with the Pope. So, but I, I, I understood immediately that I, I needed to know more. I wanted to know why Michelangelo was commissioned to, to, to Istanbul. Had he been there? Had he traveled? Uh, for me, it was very important because, you know, I was always fascinated by meeting points between the East and the West. And that was saying two things. First of all, that the Ottomans were very interested in art in Italy and in an almost unknown sculptor and artist, still young. So they knew that these people were the best in Europe and they invited them. So that, that was uh, incredible. So I, I wanted to know more and I, I researched and there's another, the first biography it's almost its autobiography because uh, it's by Ascanio Condivi. And Condivi was a kind of disciple of Michelangelo. And we know that Michelangelo himself did probably dictate the text to him and tell him himself his own life. And so we know a little more. We know that the commission uh, from the Sultan was for building a bridge. And we know also that how the invitation came in through... Uh, Franciscan monks. So, can you imagine that? And because we know that, and the Ottoman knew that Michelangelo was free, that two weeks before he had argued with the Pope and had fled from Rome. How do you know that so quickly in in the 16th century? You know, that means that Ottomans are very, very good spies at that time. Uh, and so, that was fascinating, and I said, I wanted to know, but had he gone to, to, to Istanbul? Had he been there? Because then the biography, um, after a month or two, then Michelangelo went to Bologna for a few months, almost a year, and then went back to Rome. <coughs> I said, but there's time to go to Istanbul. Has he been there or not? So I asked a few historians, um, the best on, on the the Italian Renaissance, and and I asked him, is it possible that Michelangelo went to, to, to Istanbul at the point? And he said, look at me, I said, no way. I said, why? He said, we wouldn't know it. So I realized, I said, well, but never mind, let's send him there and see what happens. <laughs> so that's how the, this adventure began. And... Um, it was really an adventure because you have to, to write this story. I had to uh, reconstruct 
Istanbul at that time. So to know exactly where Michelangelo would arrive, mm -hmm. with whom, um, what would he, who would he meet, what would he do, uh, and, and so that, that was quite meticulous to, to, mm -hmm. to research, but it was very, very interesting and fascinating. I think we also need to share the aftermath when the book was, uh, Matthias has so many readers in Turkey, uh, and it's published well, read very, you know, well, uh, but there was this, Amazing publication in one of the nationalist newspapers in, in Turkey saying a French novelist finally proved that Michelangelo came to Turkey, <laughs> you know, to Istanbul. So that's also. <laughs> and uh, with my arguments, that means that it was very, yeah, yeah. very yes. proving. Very yeah. proving. <laughs> <laughs> to me, this, I mean, there's so many sentences that, is, is, that stayed with me in, in your novel. But this part where, where you talk, um, Michelangelo can't help but imagine the reaction of Julius II when His Holiness, the very Christian Pope, learns of this interview and the presence of his favorite sculpture with the Grand Turk. This thought instills in him a rather pleasant mixture of excitement and terror. Uh, I, I thought about that sentence a lot, this excitement and terror when we think about the East, when we think about the other. I also thought about the first time I read Fernand Brodel uh, years ago in Turkey when I found this Turkish translation for the first time for me. Someone was saying, wait a minute, it's not like that. It's not a duality, East versus West. Actually, the Mediterranean was politically, in terms of military, commerce, mm -hmm. society, philosophy, art, architecture, we were so interconnected, much more in the 16th century than we tend to think. So there is a conversation, I think, in, in, in your book that very much reminds us of what we have forgotten. Yes, it's true. That's... Uh at that time, the Ottoman Empire was the very emerging power of the time. So everybody wanted to work for them uh, because they paid very well. And um, you had, and the problem of Michelangelo is that he's uh, engaged to whom? To the Pope himself, you know. And the Pope, Julius II, was uh, as fought himself against the Ottomans in the south of Italy ten years before. Yeah. And he holds the brother of Bayezid hostage in the south, Jem, yeah. just in case there's a possibility of a change of dynasty in, yeah. in, in Istanbul. So uh, for Michelangelo, there's a kind of, of excitement for what he can achieve and where he is and what it means at that time, but also of terror, because he knows that uh, the Pope is someone very powerful and very violent, would be able probably... Revenge. Yeah. Yes, yeah. To, to, to kill him. It's a very very uh, tough, extremely uh, hard punishment, if he knew it, you know. Um, and there's also something about this possible travel of Michelangelo into Turkey. There's something very, very strange that we have a manuscript of Michelangelo himself. You know, Michelangelo was also a great writer, poet. He wrote sonnets, very famous sonnets in Italian. In the Florentine version of Italian at that time. And um, there's one, an obscure sonnet against the Pope, signed Michelangelo in Turkia, Michelangelo in Turkey. So when I, when I, when I, I saw that one, I said, yes, he's, he's been there, you know. And there are also, on the Vatican Library, um, they have a, a beautiful 
plan of of uh, uh, Santa Sofia made precisely at that time in 1506 1505 and um, that's the one Michelangelo himself used to inspire himself when he designed the dome of San Pietro in Rome years later. So there are many things connecting him sure. to, to Istanbul at that time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he went there. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you mentioned Sinan, the, the great architect. Of course, most of the cityscape the, you know, in, in, in Istanbul, we owe it to him. He was very productive. He left behind more than 200 monuments. And again, in Turkey, we don't talk about this, but he was uh, born a Christian, and he converted to Islam later on, when he was 21 years old, which was relatively a late age uh, for that time, because intelligent children, boys at the palace school, they were converted to Islam when they were younger. So to me, it's very interesting. His basic formation is in Christianity. And then he's asked to make domes to compete uh, right. Yes, with, yes, with, uh, it's and and to use architecture as uh, as a source of competition. But in my opinion, he refuses to do that. And when we read about his life, what I found very interesting was there were also Ottoman architects in Italy at the time. So these journeys are not one sided. It's not yes. a one way road. And maybe there was a bigger conversation uh, if we look at it through the eyes of arts and architecture than we tend to assume. And we yes, don't know probably. much about that history, yeah. No, probably. The, you know, the thing is that they want, they tended to hide these things in this context because it was yeah. uh, not to be public, let's say, you know, on one side or on the other. Yeah. Uh, especially on the Christian side, to deal with Mahometans was something that was badly forbidden. Um, on the other side, it was not because it was more mixed societies. And many of, of the person of the court were slaves, so to say, uh, converted to Islam at an early age, but from uh, Christian origin. And from Sinan, we have two autobiographies, Mm -hmm. texts that he wrote himself about himself. Mm -hmm. So we know a lot about his life. And uh, as I said before, I wanted so much that Michelangelo met uh, Sinan, but it was was not possible. Mm -hmm. Now, something that a novelist cannot do, (laughs) that's to to bind history. But Michelangelo meets a lot of people in Istanbul, and um, one of them, I was very happy. You know, when you begin researching for a book, then you read and you say, you don't know what the novel would be about, really. You know that Michelangelo is invited to Constantinople to build a bridge. That's it. And then you realize that Leonardo da Vinci was also invited. And that we have, still today, we have... The drawings. Yes, the drawing yeah. for the bridge yeah. that, that Leonardo da Vinci sent to, to Istanbul, and which was refused. And we can imagine why, because it's impossible to build. Uh, to build the bridge. It's it's an incredible design of three arcs, two like this, supporting a third one for 400 yards, more or less, uh, of arc. So that means a height of about 30 yards. It's impossible. At that time, it was impossible to build. And nowadays, we would know very well 
how to build such a huge bridge with one arch. And there's only a replica in, I think it, it's in Norway, someplace. Uh, but it's really smaller. It's about 10 meters long only. So when, when I, I realized that, I said, oh, that's, that's, my stories is getting like more real. You know, we have a bridge, even if it's not Michelangelo's, we have designs. And we know that at the end of his life, Leonardo da Vinci was learning Turkish. Because in, um, he was writing, uh, learning how to write Arabic characters, and Turkish letters, and, and we have some drawings of him. Like, so it's, it's very beautiful to, to, to know that even the master of the Renaissance, the one we, we associate with the most with, with Europe, was also learning Turkish. Um, and so I realized that. And then also, the more I, I learned about the political personal at that time in Istanbul, the way the court worked, um, who the great vizier was, the, uh, Ali Pasha, mm-hmm. his person, I realized that there was a poet there called Messihi of Pristina. Messihi Pristina said. And he has a strange name, Messihi, that means the Christian, or from the Messiah, the, the Messiah. And from Pristina in Kosovo. But he was the secretary of the Great Vizier and a very well-known poet at that time. He is in every uh, anthology of Ottoman poetry of that period. So I was very happy. So I said, oh, if Michelangelo goes to Istanbul, then he will meet Messihi. A poet, very interesting character, with um, lots of, for nowadays, scandalous poems about the different kinds of boys in the empire and how they look and how they, where they are more beautiful than other places and uh, all of um, homosexual descriptions of um, of the cities of. of the Ottoman Empire at that time. And Messihi was writing also, I'd say, more conventional poems about uh, spring and um, four seasons, that it was um, kind of a topos at that time. He was uh, drunk, he was an uh, opium smoker, uh, very sympathetic to start with. And so I... I knew I had a few characters that I, I could use to, to write this story. And um, I'm pretty sure that uh, if Michelangelo had been to Istanbul, then he would have met Messi. Yeah, yeah. I thought Messi was a wonderful character. The whole Divan poetry mm. in, in the Ottoman Empire, actually, uh, would be censored if they had, if they had been written today. You know, yes. and that's the, that's the, our notion of progress. Uh, both homosexuality and also bisexuality mm, is, is quite clear with, with the metaphors. But that also makes me think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in your work, I see a deliberate attempt, maybe, to give more voice to to the issues that have been silenced or suppressed or forgotten, mm. as if you are trying to make us remember. You know, just bring back memory. 
uh, a collective memory. I feel this as a writer as well, coming from Turkey, which is a country of collective amnesia. But all around the world, we, we've forgotten all this complexity of our history. And I see a deliberate attempt, perhaps, in your work on yes, but to, to bring back that memory. Yes, and the nuances, right. so, the nuances. Yes, to, to bring back kind of complexity to the world and, and mm. some, somehow um, by telling stories and so, uh, make us think of what's, what we were, what's, what we are now, and, and um, the relations we can build between us, you know, what, what, um, what means um, Turkey today. We often forget that, that it comes from the Ottoman Empire and that yeah. uh, what we call the sick man of Europe yeah. for many years. Yeah. That says something, well, maybe it was sick, but it was of Europe, not yeah. from some Absolutely. other continent, you know. Yep. And um, so uh, we, we tend to remember what suits us at a certain time and there's a political side in memory that maybe a a writer wants to avoid and uh, mm. uh, tell his own story and to kind of to bring back some things that are forgotten. You know, we talk about the Janissaries, which was the heart of the Ottoman mm. Empire because it was a military empire in that regard. I remember reading uh, back in high school in, in Turkey, uh, reading this book by Ivo Andrich, The, the Bridge of... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Drina. And for the first time, because you, you swallow a certain interpretation of history, and that interpretation at school had taught me we were a great empire, we had brought justice and civilization wherever we went. And I, th I think the British audience is also familiar with that kind of rhetoric. But in Britain, if you go to a bookstore, you can find alternative versions of history, questioning the official history. In Turkey, it's much more difficult to find those alternative versions. And when you read Ivo Andrich for the first time, I remember being very struck, two Serbs talking about the Ottoman Empire and one of them criticizing how Christian children had been snatched from their families and the other one saying, you know, but they were poor children and they were allowed to go all the way up. And the first one saying, yes, but at the expense of what? You know, forgetting their mothers, their families, their identities. But for the first time for me, through literature, you can put yourself in the shoes of both personalities and look at the history from those different angles. I mean, maybe this is one thing that we're losing outside literature. And in, as I read your work, I keep reading not only this one, but in Compass, in, in, in the others as well, I see this attempt to make us shift our positions and try to see the story through the eyes of the other and then the other. Yes, you're right, and especially as the, um, let's say, the different version of the visions of the representations of the, the East and the West are concerned. Yes, it's true. And the, the story of the two Serbs is, is, is uh, very interesting in that regard because it's true that um, one of the main motives for the conversion to Islam in the Balkans 
whether if you were a Muslim, then you kept your sons and you pay less taxes. So we know that entire families, entire villages uh, converted to Islam first at the beginning in the 16th century, then the 17th, then the 18th. Um, some of them for interest, for the faith of Islam, but also many of them because they wanted to escape um, taxes and the fact that their son would be sent to, to, to the army in Istanbul. And, but on the other way around, it's true that all the, the powerful people in Istanbul were sons of uh, Balkan Christians converted to Islam who achieved their way in Istanbul. So yeah. both yeah. versions are true. At a point. Yeah. And uh, that's the problem that um, we always rely on. We want it be this or that. But many times, and what's difficult to accept, that is this and that at the same time. And uh, especially as this, like, mirrors are concerned between East and the West. We are always looking at, like, at ourselves in the mirror of the other. And the image we are seeing is true, right? It's a reflection. But at the same time, we are sending the same reflection to the other of his own image. Like the two Serbs talking, they say, no. And, but they are arguing when they shouldn't. They are both right. You know, but they're talking about two different versions of the story, and they can not decide which of them is is the real one, because both are true. Mm-hmm. And um, as the most, the more I, I write about these uh, representations of the others and uh, the stories between East and West, and Orient and Occident, the more I, I I realize that many times it's not that. One version is true and the other is not. Sure. That, that many times both are true. And that's the most difficult thing to admit. Sure. That uh, both are right at the same time. Which is for us uh, addicted to Aristotle logics since <laughs> childhood. It's difficult to, to, to admit, but it can be true. It can be true. Ten days after you have received the Goncourt, uh, the Bataclan attacks happened, right? In, yes, in Paris. Um, and of course, the, the the entire horrific events, and also the the aftermath, the debates in 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 France. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about politics. Do you think novelists have any responsibility in our times to speak up more and more in the public space? Uh, the, the the word intellectual changes its meaning as you move from one country to another. In England, it has a very negative meaning. It's it sounds as if there's, it's a sign of arrogance. In France, I think it used to be different. In Turkey, to. in Russia, different. We expect writers mm. to comment on political issues, but then we hate them for doing that anyhow. So, how do you see that politics and literature? It's I, a very you, difficult, difficult tell you a story marriage. About that. Yeah. That when the the day after the 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 attacks in in, in Paris, the fifteenth of November, um, my phone at home in Barcelona rang like I, you know, it was late at night, and we were looking at what's happening until three or four in the morning, and my my phone rang at seven seven thirty, and and I was like half asleep, so I picked up like, 
and then it was a journalist. A journalist from a very small newspaper from the southwest of France, small in importance, very huge in numbers, Sud-West. And he said, well, uh, you just won the Goncourt with a book talking about oil and accident. And yesterday, uh, there was a terrorist attack in Paris. What do you have to say? And I said, right now, it's too soon. I, I, nothing. I, I don't want to say nothing. I, I'm sorry. And I hung up the phone. And the next morning, there was a whole page saying, the Goncourt has nothing to say about the <laughs> 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 uh, anyway, you know, you're trapped. You're trapped, yeah. So, either you don't answer your phone, never, yeah. or you have to admit that you have to say something. Yeah. And that's what I realized at that moment. That's, well, not all journalists are fortunately that kind of, of journalist, but... Um, but yes, it's true. When you, when you get certain audience, you... you you get also a kind of responsibility with it. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know what really what that means, but I think it means that you have to say something. And um, even if they hate you for that later. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that in France, it's, it's <coughs> always like that. You know, we, we, the world intellectual is maybe not so uh, pejorative these days, but it's, it's also... What we ate, I think, are the people who are able to speak about and talk about anything, any subject, anyhow, (laughs) (laughs) and the television, you know, like uh, every event, anything, now like specialists of of, uh, having an opinion, uh, which I'm not, but on these matters, so later on I wrote something um, about what I felt and what I think those um, attacks meant I think they have nothing to do either with Islam or the reality <coughs> of the situation between the East and the West something very French and uh, very mm-hmm. local at the end mm-hmm. I want to open the floor for questions but before that there's a, in one of your interviews you mentioned when they ask you is there a question you've never been asked and you would like to talk about you say yes uh, Portuguese codfish recipe. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it's not surprising because in your books, food is so important. It's so visual, sensual. It's so there, you know, vivid. So I'm going to ask you about Portuguese codfish recipe as we I found the Bible. Yeah. And you want that. to write a cookbook, right? It's, uh, yes, it's I want of my to write projects. a cookbook I, as well. I, I, I'd love the, to write the, a cookbook. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a lot of work and it's complicated yeah. because you don't want to write any cookbook like uh, the one with the few recipes and pictures and so I, I have to imagine the form because the form is very important for a cookbook sure. what I love in cookbooks about the old ones because they are much more descriptive and yeah. it's not just like a recipe uh, two ounces of that three of this and the stir no no they really uh, describe, describe it, how yeah, you should yeah. do it, and yeah. and that that's for a writer. It's much yeah, like more grandmothers fun. would describe it. Yeah, but we are thinking of doing a um, because I own a restaurant in Barcelona, which is also very. Uh, it's Lebanese, but it's also we have antique recipes from the Phoenicians in the east of the Mediterranean, yeah. 
a lot of stories in that. So I think maybe we should do a book about the restaurant, not with recipes. But one of the, well, just to tell one thing more about the book, um, one of the hardest things was to research what you ate in Istanbul at the beginning of the 16th century. It was very difficult, very, very. Uh, first of all, because um, at that time there were not you know, cooking books. There were uh, all kinds of books, but the people need no book for cooking because books were very dear. And books were for libraries, not for having in your home and, and looking at them while you were cooking. So, um, But there are historians. There are historians for everything. And there are specialists, not for food, but for alimentation and the Mediterranean. And so I, I asked one of them if he could tell me a source, you know, a book who would explain what we would eat in the Ottoman Empire at that time. And he said to me, he said, no, I cannot, but I will tell you it will be very boring and it will be many broth and soups and kind of thing like that. And I was amazed. I said, no, it's not possible. Probably. And then I realized that uh, that was true because there's a big change in alimentation in the 16th and 17th century with all the products coming from America. And first of all, when you imagine what they were eating in the 15th century, you have to imagine that it's only European or Asian products, but nuts, tomatoes, peppercorns, nothing like that, because they, they're coming from America, and they were introduced in the 16th century uh, and 17th. So the big moment of uh, the Ottoman cuisine, which is wonderful, and links the north of the Balkan, Albania, to uh, Egypt, is from the 17th century onwards. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky because Michelangelo doesn't eat much. much. <laughs> He's very sober. He doesn't drink. He doesn't eat. He's like a marble statue himself. So I, I was uh, lucky in that. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Shall we? Yeah, we have a microphone, I think. Okay, perfect. There's one. This has been fascinating. I'm interested to know um, if you follow rules in creating your fictional world, you are, as you've described it, happy to send Michelangelo to Constantinople, but you can't have him meet the architect because he would have been somewhere else. So there seem to be some some changes to or elaborations on history that you're happy with and some that violate a rule that's perhaps in your mind. So how do you go about creating your world? Yes, the, the rule was, was clear. It was that I wanted to make a novel that would be, uh, so to put a label on it, 100% true, 100% historic, except the main event. <laughs> <laughs> that is Michelangelo going to Turkey. All the rest had to be more or less mm, historical. That means that we have a source. We can source the event. So that's why I, I couldn't go to the extent to say that he met Sinan and he would build... That would be great, great story. They would build a wonderful dome together and yeah. we would discover that um, 
first, at, at first I thought that maybe the mosque of Bayezid, which is one of the first, first big ensemble in, in, in Constantinople to be built at that time, could have something of Michelangelo in it, but no, because it was already finished when he arrived. So, <laughs> um, I had to make sure that everything was right just to put my little figurine of, of Michelangelo inside my perfect model. But it's not perfect because there are always flows. <laughs> Did you actually go to Istanbul and live there for a while? And for how long? You didn't. Not for that book. But I knew Istanbul, and the problem was, I have been many times to Istanbul, and it's one of my favorite cities. I go there a lot, it's almost in all my books. Yeah, in the previous ones <laughs> well. ones as well. Uh, in Compass, it appears too, yeah. and I'm, I'm a very big fan of Istanbul. But when I was written that book, I, I was in Rome, and then in Barcelona. And I said, I had all what I needed because it was about Istanbul in the past. So it was difficult even to go to Istanbul and to look around. You say, no, no, that was not there. That was not there. That was not there at that time. But I had a problem. We know exactly where the bridge would have been because that's quoted in, in, in a few texts. But I, I had no idea of the width of the Golden Horn at that point. So I said, I just go to Istanbul and try to measure it in some way. I didn't know if I had to, to hire a, a someone with the machine to, to the distance or something or just look at the map. Well, so I went there and I more or less got the, the figure I wanted. And then I went back and discovered that I could do it very easily on Google Earth. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my trip was no use. And... Please. No, there was, oh, sorry. sorry, I didn't. Just a very quick one. Um, do you ever, I know you're clearly in love with the past and, you know, interested in explaining it to us in this very interesting way, but in the end of Street of Thieves, you've got a very interesting picture of Barcelona where there's this kind of melting pot of mm -hmm. refugee cultures and people fleeing and this new language being created, a kind of street language being created. And I really want to know what happens to the character of Street of Thieves in 50 years' time. Do you ever think about writing about the future? Oh, it's, it's nice. It's, um, you know, I've never done a second uh, part of, of my books. That could be an idea. Um, but... The real Lachdar, uh, the, the the real character, um, he still lives in Barcelona, and now, um, well, he's working as a secretary of uh, you know, a lawyer in, in in Barcelona. So he's he's well, and uh, uh, but um, yes, it's true that now many more people are coming to Barcelona, um, but. Very, very little from the Arab world, strangely. Uh, much more from Nigeria, um, much more south. But Ma Moroccans, there are many Moroccans. Young ones, too. But I think now it's a little less than, than before. I don't know why. But, but it's a good idea. I could write like a volume two. Yeah, a sequel. I notice in... Your, your books, uh, they're very different. Zone 
is a huge blockbuster of a book. This current book is very delicate, and the chapters are almost like sort of Persian miniatures. And Rue des Voleurs is another kind of book mm-hmm. altogether. Is it? Do you feel? And we hear about a cookbook now. So, is it like? Do you want to try different genres? You think, well, I've done that thing. I'll try something else. Or is it the structure of the book, the theme that suggests the structure? Or, or yes, I yeah. think uh, every book comes with its way of being written. For example, I, maybe it's because I had written uh, a long, huge one sentence book of 500 pages that I wanted to write something more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and because it was about Michelangelo, I had the idea at the beginning that it could be like um, a book of sketches. Because we, you know, we have many drawings from Michelangelo. Michelangelo, it's, it's really fascinating to, to, to write or work on him because we have so many things. We know so much about Michelangelo. First, because he's lived 80 years and uh, because uh, we still have his, um, um, uh, his house and all his papers, uh, his contracts, many, many, many things. And what fascinated me in, uh, when I, I began writing and, and researching about Michelangelo is that he loved lists, all kinds of lists. There are many, many, many remaining lists of, uh, there's one at the beginning of the book, which was, we, I choose that one because, because it's with small drawings, you know. But, um, we know many things about him because he kept lists of what he ate, what he bought, what, anything. So the money, he was very completely obsessed with uh, money and not very sympathetic, but character, but, um, very greedy, uh, mm-hmm. genius, but greedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this particular feature that gave me the way that the book had to be written with lists of words, lists of things, of objects, and through very short chapters that would be like sketches of a scene, of a moment. Um, so, it's, well, I'm, I'm thinking of, of the, the books and it's more or less always like that. The, the project comes with the way of writing it. You know, it's inside the project. And at times it, it takes a long time to discover it. Yeah. But at the end, you, you, you realize now it has to be written like this because um, well, there's, there's a kind of, of um, alchemy in it that uh, makes it possible. I think we have time for one more question now. Yeah. Hi, I have a question for both of you. As both of you are uh, writing cross-cultural narratives, what does like what do home and belonging mean to you? Ah, tough question. Tough question. You first. You first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a it's a question that matters a lot to me, you know, and I think it's possible to be in more than one place at the same time. And somehow you are in your soul, divided, connected. This maybe brings along a sense of loss or absence, but it also adds something else. I always want to, to believe that it's possible to have more than one home, you know, homes, plural. I always want to believe that it's possible to have homelands. And at the end of the day, a writer's homeland is 
a storyland. You know, the storyland. If we have to choose a place, it's a storyland. But I believe homelands can be portable. We take it with us. We carry our homelands with us wherever we go. Um, so I'd like to think of myself, of course, I'm an Istanbulite, but I'm also from the Balkans. I'm from the Middle East. There are so many things in my soul that I carry from the Middle East. Uh, I was born in Europe. I chose to live in Europe, so I feel very much European. I became very connected to London. I became a Londoner. I would like to think that I'm a world citizen, even though the, the word itself is denigrated nowadays. And I would love to be a global soul if I can achieve that. So why not have multiple belongings? There's a part of me that refuses constantly to, to be reduced to a single monolithic identity. And I think we need to resist against that because everybody is pushing us in that direction, you know, those singular clashing identities. I think we are more than that and we can have multiple attachments. I totally agree with that. It's, uh, <laughs> no, it's true, it's true. It's, I think it's, I, I've even written it someplace. And, um, I think we are on the move. That means that we are never fixed to something And um, we all are in evolution. And maybe when I started in, in Nyo, I was only a French from that place and didn't know much about the world. But now, of course, I've changed. I'm home, at home in Barcelona. Or I love to think that a part of me is, has became also Arab. Uh, they speak the language and I'm inspired by the literature every day. Or that you get, you take parts of um, where you live and you learn more. Um, and uh, of course, um, I am at home where my friends, my my family, my books, my the things I, I like are with me, you know. That's there's something it's movable. You can you can move from one place to another. So yeah. I'm I'm home almost everywhere if I I could I think now I you know people say we were talking about this at noon. Where would you choose to live if you could? Mm. And that's a very tough question to answer because I could live anywhere. And um with always the same pleasure because you can always find something very interesting in a, in a very small or very quiet place or indeed in a big cosmopolitan city or not. So it's all up to you, I think. All, all up to us personally, uh, to us, yes. but also it, it's, it's up to freedom of speech. Of if, if you're able to mm. write, to write, speak up. That also is important. But I but I agree with what you're saying. I mean, we, we can be anywhere in the world and, and feel at home. Mm. It's it's nothing to do with ethnicity or race or, or blood. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are probably lots, but which Arab Arab writers have to, uh, are you particularly inspired by? I'm sorry? Which Arab which writers, writers are you particularly inspired by? I'm uh, sure there are lots, but Oh many no no uh, you know I It's great because you have you are lucky in in, in English to have a great translation of his work. Um, you know, there's a wonderful book called in Arabic "Sak al Sak," which is translated by it's it's doing like this. You know, 
and I think it's crossing legs or something like that. Yeah, leg over leg. Leg over leg, great. And so we have, you have a great translation. It's from a, a, a great Lebanese author from the late 19th century who has traveled around all Europe. And he's the first real novelist in Arabic. And then he settled in, in Istanbul and, and died there around 1880. So that's, for me, it's one of the best books ever written. And there's a new translation into English, which is complete and wonderful translation in, uh, from, from the US. Um, which we haven't in French, for example, not yet. We have only partial, good, but partial translation of leg of a leg. His name is Faris Shidiak, which is, the, the spelling is quite, you know, like a sound, but it's a Q at the end, normally. And um, his name is Faris, surname Shidiak. And he's always, uh, because he, he has also a strange religious itinerary. He, he's a Christian by birth. Then he, uh, he was a, uh, an Orthodox or Maronite, Maronite. Mm. I mean, Catholic, but, uh, Oriental Catholic. Then he went, he became Protestant and he was fascinated with, uh, Britain and England. Um, then he went to France and he converted to Islam later on. And in Istanbul. So his name is Ferris, that was his Christian name, then Ahmed Shidiak. But if you look on the Ferris Shidiak, you will find him. It's really fascinating. It's incredible because it's a travel book, it's also an adventure novel, it's very literary and uh, very funny also, with an incredible language. Matthias, thank you so much. No, no, we I can listen you. to you for, for hours. It's such a pleasure to have thank you. So Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.